Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 46. Resilience is how I would describe my next guest, and you'll understand why. At the age of 10, William Kem was diagnosed with childhood leukemia, and he experienced multiple appointments of radiation and treatments of chemo, really excruciating, painful appointments for months and months and months. He was able to beat this. However, before that time, he lost his mother to a car accident, which devastated him and impacted the next 20 years of his life, resulting in active addiction. In those years, William went to at least seven to nine detox facilities and five treatment facilities, was in and out of jail, and struggled with homelessness. Despite a difficult start in life, William now has five years in recovery, and he says he's recovered and beat addiction. He's now working and training in holistic health with a world-class holistic health and life coaching company. Take a listen. Hi, William. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. No worries, Dr. Millie. It's nice to meet you finally. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. So let's just dive right in. Share a little bit about what happened to you as a child that kind of impacted you moving forward. Okay. You know, my parents were married as I was growing up. I see them fight a lot, right? So that kind of caused a bit of, you know, mental anguish with me and my brother. And when I was 10 years old, I was actually diagnosed with T-cell leukemia. Mm. So basically, we just went. I just went through the Western medical route. My parents were scared, right? They didn't know what to do. And, you know, they feared for my life, obviously, right? So yeah. I went through chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and then um, I came out of remission and ended up having a bone marrow transplant. You know, I did quite a few long stints in the hospital. Like, as you can imagine, there's quite a few complications to do with like the treatments and stuff like that. Like, for those that don't know, chemotherapy is like one of the most toxic substances you can put in your body, right? Like, so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it damages you on the inside. And um, so... I had a lot of damaged organs and stuff just from the chemotherapy. And then um, when I went to have my bone marrow transplant, then I had to have full body radiation therapy. So I had like 10 bouts of that, which um, wow. basically what that does is it burns you from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was like in, in massive amounts of pain as a child. And to counteract that, they gave me morphine. So like, even before I like, for some reason, I don't know why, like even like I'd be like, as a child, 10 years old, you know, I'd be stealing my dad's cigarettes and stuff and smoking. And so I think I kind of like became an addict as as a small child, even with sugar, was probably my first addiction. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I really, really think about it too much. But so anyway, so I kind of jumped around there. But fast forward to now when I'm, I'm, I'm on morphine, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they basically gave me my own buzzer. So imagine a 10 year old child and he can hit this morphine whenever he wants. Wow. And it was basically every seven minutes I could hit it because I was in so much pain. And you know, I was kind of, I really honestly, I liked the feeling of it. I would hit it as often as I could. Sure. And um, I think I was probably addicted to it at that point. So basically, you know, I made it through all that, right? With, you know, obviously some some damages to my organs and stuff. And um, we was actually coming home from a checkup from Calgary. And I lived in just outside Edmonton. I should mention to you, like this whole time, my mom basically never left my side. Mm-hmm. She'd stay in the hospital with me. And like my dad never... He was always super busy on the farm, so he never really had a lot of time to even spend with us as as children, right? So it was always us and our mom. Like she would always take us out on outings and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so like she never left my side the whole time. She dated in the hospital in a cot and stuff. And like we, we were always we were best friends. Like I was a mom's boy, right? 
And um, coming back from a checkup, um, one of my checkups in Calgary and heading back towards Edmonton, my mom fell asleep at the wheel and we got in a motor vehicle accident. We were both tossed from the vehicle. My brother was, fortunately, he was wearing a seatbelt and we were not. I was thrown into the ditch and I suffered like a fractured femur and was knocked unconscious. And my mom was, the vehicle landed on top of her mm. and um, it killed her. I just remember when I came to you in the ditch, the first thing I was screaming for was my mom, right? How's my mom? Is my mom okay? Mm-hmm. And um, they told me that, yeah, she's fine. She's fine. But she she was dead, right? But they didn't tell me that, obviously. And even in the hospital, I remember screaming like, where's my mom? Where's my mom? And um, they just didn't tell me, right? And it wasn't until like, I came to in the, my hospital bed and everyone was around me and they told me, right? And I was just devastated. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I can't remember how long I cried for, but it was like weeks. Once I finally recovered, like from my injuries, my fractured femur and some other, like I went to the windshield, right? So I had some, quite a few cuts and scrapes in my face. And um, the femur was, you know, a pretty bad injury too, because it's like the biggest bone in your body. Mm-hmm. They say it's like the most painful bone to break. But so after that, like once I came to and I started like going back to school and stuff and, you know, things just obviously weren't the same. I was like a super angry kid at that time. And, mm. you know, I blamed myself and I, you know, I blamed everyone and, and including myself. And I was just like super, super angry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just started acting a lot differently. I was like stealing booze and stuff off my dad and taking it to school and getting drunk in school, skipping school. And like, I just really started acting out. And um, we ended up moving from Edmonton Mm -hmm. to the island because um, me and my dad kind of just want to get away from all the memories and stuff. And my dad wanted to be close to his his sister who lived on the island. And um, that was kind of like the only family we had besides like my mom's brother who was in Kamloops. So anyways, I went and lived on the island and um, things didn't really change for me. I just I was trying to think. I went to school. When I first went to school on the island, I didn't know anyone there. And, you know, I was obviously quite different because I was, you know, I was really small. I was still recovering from cancer and all this other stuff, right? So mm-hmm. the kids really, like, kids can be tough, you know, and they they picked on me a lot. And, you know, I just told my dad I don't want to go to school. And he said, you have to go to school. So he sent me basically to an alternate school. Basically, I just, you know, I, I went there. I took the bus there, but I didn't. I just, like, kind of hung out in the smoke pit, met some friends there, and then um, basically just skipped school and started smoking weed and stuff then and, and drinking and Kind of like um, just not really getting along with with my dad at, at that point. Like he was kind of really frustrated with the way I was acting and not listening to him. And he told me, you know, I gotta I gotta go. And I said, well, you know, I got no like, what am I gonna go? And he said, phone your uncle and see if you can move with him. So that was my my mom's brother. So I phoned him and he said, yeah, sure, come on down. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Kamloops and um, things didn't really change for me then either. I was still the same kid, still angry, and mm-hmm. you know, I felt like the world owed me, right? And I was. Sure. I started, I started acting out again. It was crazy. Like just my, my cousin was a few years older than me at the time. She was like heavy into partying and stuff. And she lived with my uncle. And so we would party together and stuff. And then I'd kind of meet kids through her. And I started like basically started selling weed at that time. I would go down to the high school and just hang out in the smoke and sell kids joints. And then I'd meet and that's just how it happens. Right. And I started meeting other people and then started selling mushrooms. And, and just, I just became like um, consumed with, with making money and, and getting high every day and basically drinking every day. It's, mm-hmm. I started drinking almost daily because I kind of left this up with like, um, I'll go back to it, but a lot of the reason why I would do drugs and stuff and, and smoke would kind of like, it would like relax me because I had really bad anxiety. And mm-hmm. it was like even hard for me to even like talk to people because I was so self-conscious of like the way I looked and my voice was really bad too, right? So I found like when I did drugs or got high, it was kind of like, it kind of like freed me from that a little bit. And then when I found drinking, it like really freed me and it just really made me not care. So mm-hmm. 
Um, I just realized I started having a lot more, like a way better time drinking and people seem to like me a lot more. So that's kind of like what I just started doing. So I'd wake up in the morning and I'd, I'd be drinking like right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I was probably, I think 15 at the time. And that's become like a, a daily, a, basically a, like a daily weed smoker and drinker. You know, I, I lasted with my uncle probably three years and um, where he just finally got to the point where he was sick of it too. And he realized you know, he loved me and really cared for me and he tried everything in his power to help me and, and to show me a, a better way, right? And um, I just, I wouldn't listen, obviously. And I just, I was, you know, addicted to that point, I figure. And I wasn't changing for no one. And um, so he kicked me out. I ended up moving back to the island. My brother told me I could come stay with him because he had a few things going on. He was like kind of the same story. He was going through the same things I was, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know, but him at the time, he was into the heavier drugs at that point, which he didn't tell me and I didn't know. So when he was, and he was kind of like doing things with some like organized crime and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so I moved in down there with him and I actually like started taking care of one of the houses that they're working in. And, and basically I was taught how to grow weed. And um, it was like, I was kind of like in my glory, right? Because at the time, like a 15 year old, it was weird. Like people would ask me what I want to do. And I would just tell them like, I don't want to be a big time dope dealer. Mm-hmm. And um, that was, you know, like I traced it to a lot of things, right? Like my mom, she used to watch a lot of like Pulp Fiction and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, people don't really think about that. But like when you're a child, you're easily influenced. And I remember this is a funny story. I remember like, I don't know how old I was. I was super young, but me and my brother, when we go trick-or-treating, we'd get these Halloween candies mm-hmm. and they're, they're rockets. I don't know if you remember them, but these rockets and we would crush them up and snort them. Uh-huh. Like, where does a young kid learn that? You know what I mean? Right. Obviously from the movies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when I was living on the island and just kind of like making a lot of money and stuff and I just felt like I'd have made it and I was just full-fledged into, into learning everything I could about, you know, selling, selling weed and stuff at that time. That was my main focus in growing weed. And basically it, it was kind of like I was doing really well at the time, staying away from drugs and, and um, drinking because I was just consumed at this point with making money. That was my new high, right? And mm-hmm. um, so um, I was still a daily weed smoker, right? Like I smoked copious amounts of weed to like... Mm-hmm. I just deal with the mental thing, right? And um, it wasn't until it was probably like three or four years. Actually, no, it wasn't that long. It was probably two years when I ended up buying my first house. Me and my brother bought a house together. And then so I was like kind of like on my own in this house, just doing my own thing. And, um, you know, I would go hang out with this guy. And he was a meth addict. Like he was way older than I was. And he was like an everything addict, actually. But meth was the his main thing. And um, one day he got me to try meth and he just like, I was kind of working with him and he's like, he just kind of said, you know, you know what can make you work a lot better. And, and I was like, no, what's that? And he just showed me, he like basically brought me like a platter of meth and he was smoking it in front of me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I, I was easily influenced. I'd try anything. Right. And so I tried it and it was amazing. Like I thought it was amazing at the time anyway. You know, I was, it was funny. I was like up for three days just after, the, just off this little bit. And um, it, like three days I got into psychosis and I was actually, I can't remember why, but I was staying with my dad for a little bit at that point. And um, I went to severe psychosis and I um, basically saw like a whole SWAT team outside my dad's house. And um, I tried telling him like, there's a SWAT team out there. And obviously it wasn't there, right? But no one could convince me that this thing wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. That was like my first experience with psychosis and just being up for so many days. But sorry, I kind of got off course. I don't know why I was doing with my dad, but basically um, things kind of like just snowballed out of control for me for a little while there. And then um, I ended up uh, moving away again and um, I managed to stay like stay free and clean for a while and just still smoking weed. And um, so I kind of thought like I, I was under control and I came back again and, you know, I seemed to do really well for a while. 
So um, let me slow you down, William, just for a second. I mean, this is yeah. this is really an interest. I mean, a, a dangerous pathway, right? And yeah. um, you mentioned that you know there were moments where you had, you know, you weren't drinking or using drugs, but smoking weed. How did you yes. do that? I mean, after a deep psychosis, you yes. did you stop it, meth for a minute? I did. Yeah. How did I you do scared. that? I think it was just sheer fear, uh, but uh-huh. in my mind. I wanted to do it every day. Like it was, it was consuming my mind. Yeah, and I was it tends so to do fearful. that. Yeah, yeah, it does. I was just so fearful of doing it again because I seen how powerful addicting it was. Right. I never really experienced nothing like that. Although I did when I was a child, but I just didn't remember that. So then, yeah, I just I did try to do everything I could to avoid it. Right. And um, which like like it's a geographical change, I guess, where I just kind of went around no one that was doing that. So it kind of like kept me free for a while. But then I moved back again and I started like hanging out with this guy again and just got right back into it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'll just I won't I'll just like go through a bunch of stuff. But so basically, like I ended up getting into a different place. I bought I bought a place like a, it's kind of like just just up the road, basically 20 miles away from this guy who introduced me to meth. And we were heavily involved because, like, you know, I was moving his product and he was growing too as well. And mm-hmm. we just knew a lot of the same people. Did you have a lot of money going through this? I, yeah. So you were young, like, had a lot of money. I was young and I was making a ton of money, right? Wow, and, was, and how like, was that for you? At that time, I thought it was great. Like, I could do whatever right. I wanted, right? Wow. Like, I sometimes in an hour, I'd make nine, 10 grand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes in one deal, I'd make 20, 40 grand. And for me to be, 19 years old and i didn't grow up with much my dad was like a super super cheap guy yeah and um like he was a minimalist and we i never had new clothes growing up and stuff so you know for whatever reason that was just my goal of mine was to be rich and i'd found a like a vehicle to do that so i was just like really happy and like i said i just you know i thought i was doing okay because i was just smoking weed at this point and for whatever reason like like you asked me why how i was able to do that even though now i was still hanging with the same guy that was doing math i managed to avoid that which is you know i don't really understand how but yeah, I mean, I just, well, that fear may me, yeah. mainly, right? I mean, when, when you experience the psychosis where it feels like everything is real and super paranoid or fearful, um, yeah. that was one thing that happened on this path, this road for you, was that yeah. you were able to stop that part anyway. And so tell yes. me a little bit, like, now you're in your, what happens in your 20s? Okay, so now I'm like... This is like when I'm basically like I'm still growing a lot of weed and stuff and kind of like getting bigger and bigger and bigger and stuff. And um, getting like, there was like, I was getting greedier and greedier. So basically I started dealing in hard drugs mm-hmm. and um, I started dealing like with just um, pills like ecstasy and acid and, mm-hmm. and just like party drugs, right? And so I started doing that and um, having a lot of fun doing those. And then, um, you know, I was just basically like consumed by with making more and more and more and more money. And um, my brother, he was kind of like doing stealing in, in like stolen goods. And he was making a lot of money doing that as well. So I kind of branched off and doing that. And then that kind of led me into dealing with some lower people that are doing hard, hard drugs like crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, I started hanging out with this guy who was getting me a lot of stolen goods. And he was smoking crack right in front of me all the time. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I just... I asked him to try one time and boy, was that a mistake, right? And um, the first one I did, it was, it was like, it was the most powerful thing I ever done, right? By a long shot, even the meth had nothing on this. And then um, for whatever reason, like it, it scared me again, right? I loved it, but it scared me. And I was like, boy, oh boy, it was crazy. Right. Like, I was like, I can't do that again, right? I was like, get out of here. Like, basically, mm-hmm. I was like, just told him, like, get out of here and I don't want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Like, cause I was scared, right? I seen how powerful this was. And, and um, again, it was just like, it was in my mind though. Like, I was like, 
like fixated on doing it again. Right. And um, yes. And this guy would call me all the time. And then for whatever reason, I think I was probably fighting with my girlfriend. Who knows, right? And I was just in that frame of mind. I was like, yeah. And I, so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll come pick you up. And I wasn't even thinking about buying stuff off me. I think I was just thinking about doing the dope again, right? Sure. And um, it happened like that a couple of times. I'd, you know, get scared. and But then it was like got stronger and stronger. And then um, eventually I was like lost control with that. And fast forward, I was, you know, smoking crack every day. You know, I, I hit it for quite some time. I was able to just like buy a little bit and do that and, and just... I don't know if like if anyone knows crack, it's it's like it's one of the worst drugs ever for sure. Mm-hmm. One of the worst drugs I've experienced. And basically, like I, I was this this completely dysfunctional on it. And for whatever reason, like I don't know why I can't even explain it to this day. Like I had a lot of money at that time. So like when, when I got into it, I like I got into it heavy and hard, like a lot quicker than like most people around me were just like they were just dumbfounded with what happened to me. Cause I was so successful and they just could not understand why I was doing this to myself. And um you know, I kind of like just pushed everyone away. Like I said, it, it's, it escalated quickly. And um, it was to the point where like I tell, I could tell you some crazy, crazy stories, but, and I had a girlfriend at the time too. I feel bad for her because she wasn't even a drug addict, but like I got her smoking weed and stuff. And, but um, like I was hiding it from her. And um, Did you get you know, any thought, trouble with the law or any of that kind of stuff? I, I definitely did. Like I stayed, I stayed clear from it for a long time, but mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I started dealing with stolen goods and, and dealing with that other aspect and, and started doing hard drugs and getting really dysfunctional and, and not being nearly as like uh, professional, I guess, is what I would call it, is sneaky and just being smart about things. That's when I started getting in trouble with the law. Like I said, basically, like I'd get into really bad psychosis and I'd start speeding and I'm just doing rash things, right? Mm-hmm. I would think the cops were chasing me and they weren't chasing me and just doing all sorts of stupid things. But I ended up getting pulled over one time and it was just kind of random. I could give him a buddy. He was drunk at the time. I gave him a ride home. I was giving him a ride home anyways. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of like just what happened. And then the cops pulled me over as I was actually coming back to my vehicle. And um, who knows, right? They were probably watching me for a while. Like, you know, cops aren't stupid sure. and they know. They know everyone, and it was a small town, right? And I've been doing my thing for quite some time, so I'm sure they heard about me. So, yeah, they ended up, um, like, I was coming back to my vehicle, and they were already at my vehicle, and they are kind of, like, just waiting for me to get back. I guess they were questioning the guy I was giving a ride to, and they seen he was drunk, and it just snowballed from there. Whatever they said, they smelled weed, and and then that was it. They searched my vehicle, found the weed, and um, that was basically my first time getting arrested. For drugs, actually, anyways, I when I was a kid, as a child, actually, I got arrested a couple of times too for stealing, just small petty things. Mm-hmm. Um, that was after my mom died too. But um, so yeah, that was like my first brush to the law when I was like, I had a bunch of weed on me and stuff, and that was so that was a charge. They charged me with that. I got a lawyer or whatever, and because they like they didn't. Long story short, like I just beat that because it was they had no grounds to search me. But that was kind of like, even though it was kind of scary and stuff, and I you know I went in jail and. It just didn't deter me at all. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I kind of just kept going at what I was doing. And then like I'd get charged after charge after charge after that, basically. Once the cops knew what I was doing and I'd get, who knows, right? Like it's, it's a long story. I could tell a million stories to do that too. But mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I was just like, you know, no one was telling me different. And this was what I was focused on doing. And I didn't know any other way of being successful. And I just didn't want to give it up, right? So what um, happened I, that led you to, like you did, obviously, or we wouldn't be talking, right? So yes. there, share a little bit about that path. Like, okay, it almost sounded like you were untouchable. Like there was nobody that could 
reach you. You kind of had your mindset. Um, yes. A little bit of some some jail time and all of that stuff. Did things get worse until they got things better? Things got worse, and that's yeah, exactly. Things just continue to get worse as I continue to you know do more and more drugs because I kind of like, as you know, you build a tolerance to it, right? right. And it just gets that. It just gets more and more and more out of control. Like the little bit of control you have, you lose a little bit here and here and here, to the point where I was like up for ten days at a time. Oh my god! Like I'd literally be awake for ten days. That was like that was like at the end. But like I said, things got to the point where um, I was no no longer able to go and meet people and sell them stuff. I'd be just pulled up. I I rented a trailer like basically inside of town, away from my house that I owned, just so I could get away from my girlfriend. You know, and um, just basically do drugs whenever I wanted to. Um, yeah, it was really bad, and so I just I'd be holed up in there like for days at a time, just smoking dope, and it just get to the point where it was crazy. Like I'd see, I would think there'd be a SWAT team there again. Yeah. It was just like so insane. Well, like thinking back on it gives me anxiety, right? Yeah, I I mean, when we spoke earlier, you mentioned that there was homelessness happening in and out of jail. But what's yeah. amazing is not just that you're alive today, which that in itself is amazing. I would imagine, William. Exactly. You know, yeah. but how did you like at what point did you go you know what enough's enough and then there was some detox in there there was some drug treatment multiple times share a little bit about that okay. kind of path yeah for sure okay so like it basically all started when people started to really find out i mean they knew but they didn't confront me about it i think yeah. once they started confronting about me confronting me about it like they everyone told my dad everyone told my girlfriend remember my dad coming to the trailer where i was staying and he was just in tears bawling right mm-hmm. that kind of like had an impact on me. Things were so bad to the point where I was no longer paying my mortgage. So I was starting to lose my home. My girlfriend left me. So basically I just was like, okay, I was just desperate to try and save what I had, right? Sure. And um, so I said I'd go to detox to try and get everything, save what I had and then to get my girlfriend back. And um, so, you know, I, I did that. I went to detox for nine days. The whole time in there, it was just like, I was just basically just getting clean, just getting off a of dope sick, right? There was no solution there. So as soon as I got back, as soon as I got out, I actually got my my drug addict buddy to pick me up, and I was it's crazy. I was doing dope right away as soon as I got out. Mm-hmm. And um, so was I this just for continued. other people? Like I will do this. This is like a transaction decision. Like it's not that you really wanted to stop. Is that right? Yeah, At that exactly. Point? I, uh-huh. Yeah, I basically like I was totally consumed at this point and felt like I could keep going. Mm. right mm-hmm. and um just thought i kind of maybe needed a, like a little bit of a break to get my mortgage back on track it's like i had the money to pay the mortgage it's, it's a funny story it was the, it was in my brother's name right we bought a place together he mm-hmm. was messed right up too like he was just as messed up at this point if not more messed up than i was and mm-hmm. he wasn't even giving me money anymore so i was paying the mortgage all on my own and i had to give it to him which he wasn't paying right, right. so like it was real bad right yeah. so but yeah so i kind of like just went back to my house do the do the same thing like and um, it wasn't basically until I was really losing, I could see like, okay, I'm losing everything here. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to treatment and try that. So I went to treatment. I did 42 days in treatment. I didn't even stay clean in treatment. And, um, you know, I, I relapsed once in treatment, like they didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of, I went back and I went back, I went back to my house and um, I didn't last. I think it was a few days and I started doing it again. And fast forward, I lost my place and I basically became homeless. So I went back to treatment again. And um, what, what made I you want to go to treatment? 
because things were so bad. Like at this point, I was, you know, I was stealing again, just like, just actually not again, but I was stealing basically to support my habit because I was no longer even able to sell drugs. Like it was really bad. So I just became a klepto. And um, so I was like, I wasn't any good at it. So I was racking up a lot of charges and, um, you know, I'd get arrested for, you know, a couple of days. And it's kind of funny, like the legal system in, in Canada is kind of really slack. It's not until you get like a whole bunch of charges where you actually start doing Hard time. any serious jail time. Yeah. yeah. So basically what, what happened was I just got to the point where I was just so, so sick and tired and I couldn't even support my habit anymore. So I basically, I got, actually I got arrested again, sent in jail this time for like, it was actually, it was only like 20 days or something, right? But um, it gave me a bit of clarity and like I was a small dude, well, I'm still a small dude, but mm-hmm. um, when I went to jail, I was like 87 pounds soaking wet, like I was wow. super rough, rough shape, right? They called me ET in there, like that's how <laughs> rough I was and... I was obviously super scared going in there. Like this is my first time actually going to an actual jail. It's a Wilkinson Road in, in Victoria. And um, like before I was just like in city cells, but this was actually going to jail. And I was super scared on the way there. And I was just telling myself like, I'm, I'm never doing this again. I'm never, never going to pick up dope again. And while I was in jail, like I was basically waiting to go to trial because I had so many charges racked up. They just weren't going to let me out again, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't, I wasn't showing up with my promises to appear. So they're just like, no, we're not letting this guy out again. So they just took me straight to jail and to my next court date. And um, I just got like a legal aid lawyer. And um, and you're detoxing he, in jail, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I should touch on that. That was wow. my role. Yeah, I was, I was, they stuck me in the bug ward, which was like all a bunch of crazy guys. And that's where they stick like everyone that's detoxing. And then the, like the really guys that really shouldn't be there. Right. And it was, it was horrific. Guys screaming all night long and mm-hmm. it was insane. Right. And I'm coming off a of dope, like puking and shitting myself. Mm-hmm. It was bad. Right. Rough. And um, swear you think you'd want to be done then. Did yeah, that- for sure. I was, I was, yeah. I was like, I'm never doing this again. This is brutal. And then, um, yeah, they like as soon as I got out of there, I think I only did twenty days, and they so I got me back to court, and the lawyer was there, and he had this plan on how he was going to get me out, and he had um, arranged basically with my dad a way to get me, um, like they he talked to the judge or whatever, and always because the lawyer knows the judge, and he told him like they're going to send me straight from there to to treatment treatment. again, Mm -hmm. and um, so I I went to treatment again. I did sixty days in treatment this time, and um, actually stayed sober this whole time in treatment. And um, instead of going back to where I was before, I ended up moving to Canlips because my cousin was like, "You're going to come down here. You're going to stay with me." She was doing good. She was married and stuff, right? But she was still drinking and stuff all the time, and it was a stupid idea. And um, you know, I had a few drinks, and my buddy was down there, and he was a cokehead at the time. And before you knew it, I was right back into it again. You know, Mm -hmm. three years I lasted like just like kind of chipping away at it. It was kind of weird. I didn't fall full blown into it again until it took me about three years. And then um, things got so bad and I was homeless again. I was jumping back and forth with my uncles to my aunties and my uncle was really sick at the time and he couldn't deal with it. So, you know, I went back to dreaming again, right? And um, tried that old thing. I was actually, you know, super motivated and I was tired of living that way. Like Mm -hmm. it was probably 50. You know, probably 15, 16 years of being a drug addict at this point. And everyone around me was just you know, sick of me and just, mm. just didn't know what to do with me, right? And I didn't even know what to do with me. And so anyways, I go back to treatment in Vancouver and I did really, actually did really good. I ended up starting, took the 12 steps in, like I was, I was dedicated. And I thought, you know, gave this a serious try for once, right? And um, I actually started working at the treatment center and I wanted to wow. like, do the program. And so I was doing really well, right? I was doing really well and ended up staying like, 
10 months sober at this place. And I took on a job, which, you know, was a mistake. I, I started taking on this job through a guy who I was, you know, living and working with at the time. It was actually a, a legal grow place. Mm-hmm. They ended up finding that, like, the treatment center found out about it. And they kicked me out. And um, so I was like, it was weird. Like, I just... I had no foundation, you know, I had a foundation, I guess, with, with AA and stuff, but for whatever reason, I just, I just kind of fell. I went and stayed at a buddy's and he wasn't doing good. Like I thought he was, and I slipped and fell right back into it again. And I ended up actually mm-hmm. almost on Hastings this time. And Hastings this, was just... this cycle keeps going. Right. And I think a lot of people can relate to your story, William, about yeah. like this pattern. It's so hard to break. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it sounds like, you mentioned like you've done detox multiple times and you've done Nine treatment yeah. and then treatment facilities at least five times in there, you know, and yeah. this, the, the road of addiction just kept hitting you in the face. Like you've been, you used actively, would you say for over 20 years? Is that right? Yeah. Since I was 14, I used every day for smoking weed, but right. And hard drugs wasn't and yeah. now what is amazing is you have five years clean. Is that right? Five years. That's everything, yeah. That's amazing. So tell me yeah. a little bit about how did this last time stick? What got you to this point where you're like, I am for really, really done? Because you know, as people who suffer from addiction, they mean it in that moment. Like, I'm never going to do this shit again. I promise yeah. you. And they meant it, right? You meant it at that time too, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. But what made this last time like for real, like what happened? Honestly, like it, it's hard to pinpoint it like a certain thing. It's just a strange sure. certain events, right? Like mm-hmm. I said, I was almost on Hastings things. Like I hit a new rock bottom, right? Mm-hmm. I was literally like losing my mind. The people at the, like I'd go and get methadone at this methadone clinic. I was I was dead against methadone because it's it's the most powerfully addicting substance there is basically, right? Physically mm-hmm. addicting. And um, it was just kind of like a reprieve from Hastings. And there was a guy down there, like they treated me like gold down there and when you're a drug addict, you know, even though people care about you, it's it's just weird. It's just insane. Like, you think no one cares about you. For whatever reason, that's your mindset when you're doing dope. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly felt like this, right? Like, and, like, even though I know my dad cared about me, it's just the insanity of doing drugs, I guess, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But these people, you know, obviously, they, I could tell they really cared about me because I'd go there every day to get my methadone. And they talked to me and it was just like, they just treated me like, oh, like I said. And this guy, he convinced me, like, because he was actually a drug addict himself at one time and he had recovered. And um, so he kind of had, like, some some pull with me. And um, I just really looked up to this guy. He's a really cool dude. And he kind of reminded me of myself, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he convinced me to go to detox. And then he would actually even come. Like, he was this amazing guy. He would come visit me in detox and he convinced me to go to treatment. So I went to treatment and, like, all honesty, I was, you know, I don't think I really wanted it at that time, you know, even though I was, you know, super sick and like, I was probably like the sickest I've ever been since having mm-hmm. cancer, right? Like I was just, wow. my body was devastated, right? Like I had my yeah. cold bladder taken out and mm-hmm. I was really starting to suffer a lot of different health issues. And um, it's crazy. Like, I, so I just had a lot of um, mental issues. My my brain tell me, you know, you, I, you're not going to recover and stuff like this. And mm-hmm. So I just basically ended up falling into that mental trap again. And I went out again and I went and got some dope and I came back to the facility. And it's funny, I was actually, it's not funny, it's horrible actually, but I was ended up getting caught doing dope in, in the bathroom. And, you know, fortunately enough, like they didn't kick me out, which is probably a huge part, right? For whatever reason. Wow. And um, so they just sent me to a different house. And <laughs> it's, oh. it's funny, like 
I could, it's a funny story. If you don't mind me telling, I'll tell. Sure. It was like an LGBTQ house mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'm not gay or nothing. I got nothing against gay sure. people, right? But I was, I was scared. Like I was really, mm-hmm. I was probably phobic, right? Like, mm-hmm. and um, so when I got in there, I was like, kind of like probably scared straight, right? And I was going up the stairs and they were telling this story and it was just a really story, like a rough story that I, I didn't want to hear, right? And I was just like, wow. Mm. like this is where this is where i've come to this is where this brought me to and for whatever reason though it like kind of really changed me and like kind of opened me up to it, a lot of things and mm. kind of like really like i was just like if this is like like where i'm at now and you know i've gone through all this stuff now right and um you know i i hadn't really done the program before mm-hmm. but i kind of just like jumped head first into it and um so i like i ended up started working at that place right away like kind of asking like because there's like i guess like i'm a slow learner right they basically told me like the opposite of addiction is connection, right? Right. So I kind of like, and they were really nice to me there too, which they kind of supported me mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I guess they kind of like just saw something in me I didn't see in myself. So they just kind of encouraged me to do all these things with them, like volunteering and, and stuff like that, which, you know, if, if you haven't volunteered, I highly recommend it because Being it gave me service. a purpose, right? It gave me, yeah, uh, I'd never done that before, mm-hmm. right? And so it made me feel good about myself. Right. And um, so that was a part of it, right? And um. So all this, I won't get into much detail, but so I started working there. I ended up taking their training program and um, I was actually, so I went to the second stage. I was working in actually managing the second stage house at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just felt really good about myself. Like I never had these responsibilities before, but I think I had taken on too much and um, I wasn't taking care of my health. So I kind of like started slipping again. And and um, so it started like, wasn't sleeping enough. Was Like I said, mm-hmm. I was under too much pressure and um it's kind of like, it's just, I can't, I can't describe, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like I, I was getting run down again and to do it, like I, I had a lot of health problems, right? So um, like I had chronic fatigue and stuff like this whole time. It was like, everything was just like a real, a real struggle for me. And I'd taken on way too much. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I started getting run down, stressed out, depressed, anxiety. Like it all started coming back to me. And um, so I basically ended up like getting... I never had this before, but I was thinking like suicidal thoughts. Mm. So basically, like what happened was this is kind of like this. Why would why I would say like was the the massive game changer for me, right? I was at like at my wits end. You know, I was fighting tooth and nail to stay sober, right? And um, I felt like I had done everything in my power to do that. So my like I and then I was felt like I was at the breaking point again, mm. where I wanted to go and do dope. And so I said, my mind started telling me, playing tricks on me, saying, like, if you can't stay clean this time, you've tried all these times. Like, you obviously can't do it, so you may as well just end your life. Because I remembered how bad, like, Hastings was uh-huh. brutal. Like, it was just absolutely brutal. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a small dude. I was ducking and dodging. Guys are trying to beat me up for no reason. Like, if you've ever been to Hastings, there's, like, this place called Blood Alley, and it's, like, basically... Oh, just the name be... is gnarly. Yeah, it's there's, like, feces and, and blood and urine. Yeah dead people it's it's crazy mm. right mm-hmm. and um so it was just horrific for me and i didn't want to ever have to go back to that and i just, just like so my next thought was you know to kill myself and that really scared me like i'd never had that before and it was just like a thought in my head and i so basically i just got down on my hands and knees and i cried out to god which i'd never done before mm. and i was just begging for help like crying god for help and like AA kind of introduced me to the idea of God. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And um, that's like, it was the next day I went to work. I, it was funny. It was a Saturday. I never usually go to work on a Saturday doing this painting job. And this um, this kid came to me and he asked me, like, I kind of like said hi to him and stuff and glancing, but I didn't know him. And I was up on a scaffold and he asked me for a ride home. 
he said some guys left him and he didn't have a ride home. So I said, yeah, sure, man, I'll give you a ride home. And just let me finish up what I'm doing here. And um, I ended up starting giving him a ride home. And he was telling me the story how this guy, this holistic health and life coach, had saved his life from glycosphate poisoning. And um, basically, he told me the story about how he was dying from glycosphate poisoning. Like, um, if you don't know about glycosphate, basically, it's a chemical used in Roundup. And it was his job to spray um, these massive blueberry farms. And he did it since he was a young uh, kid. Uh -huh. Yeah. And he ended up getting, like, super toxic with this, <clears throat> this glycosphate. And um, at the time, before he got sick, like, he was about to be a pro rugby player for Canada, personal trainer. Mm. And um, one day, he just woke up and he was super sick. Like, he could barely get out of bed. Wow. Then he just, his health just started deteriorating. And um, his parents were like basically sending him, they sent him to the States, they even sent him to India to try and figure out what was wrong with him. And they all just told him it was in his head. Mm. And, um, you know, obviously he knew better. And um, so he kept searching, kept searching. And he was actually at like a health health seminar. And that's when he met this this guy who um, ended up saving his life from glycosphate poisoning. And um, his name's Ron Oliver. And basically, so he told me this story. And I just thought like, kind of like, at that time, I thought, mm -hmm. like, maybe this is an answer to prayer. It's just like, I was like, I got to get a hold of this guy. That was my thought. And I just asked him, I was like, does this guy have any success with um, drug addicts? And he told me he had like a 99% success rate Wow. Um, at that time. And it was, I was just like blown, blown away. But in my head, told me like, there's no way because mm -hmm. in AA and NA, it's like 5% or something like that. It's super, super low, right? Mm -hmm. But anyways, I was like, I just asked him, I was like, do you think I can talk to this guy? Like, can I phone him? And like, how does this work, right? And he said, I was like, I'm good friends with him. I can phone him right now. And um, I wow. said, yeah, sure. I would love that. And he phoned him right then and there. And this guy actually answered the phone and um, he passed the phone over to me and I started talking to him. We talked for like about an hour and um, he just blew my mind with like all the stuff he knew. Like, it's funny, like, even though I was a drug addict and stuff, I tried to get, try to get my health back because, you know, I didn't mention anything in my story, but I always had a lot of health issues from cancer, right? Right. Like, absolutely. I, my lungs and stuff, they damaged my lungs. Um, my voice and uh, like um, a lot of things like personal things I don't really want to get into, but mm -hmm. like uh, they damage a lot of organs. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was always on the search to mend that. Right. Because like, I like, I was into conspiracies and stuff like that. Right. So I was like deep down the rabbit hole and I knew like there's a way to heal everything. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. so basically like once I heard this guy and I talked to this guy and I was just like, he was just basically he said a bunch of things that like kind of just really resonated with me. And I was like, this guy, this guy's the real deal. And he knows himself and like, I'm going to continue talking to him. And funny, it was like, he's just a super nice guy. And he was, I could genuinely tell he genuinely cared. Mm -hmm. And um, he would actually like, he would call me and just kept calling me. And kind of like every time I talked to him, I'd feel this peace and stuff. Right. And I was still staying in the second stage house at the time. And, you know, I was doing really, really well at this point. And um, I ended up hiring him as my health and my life coach. And he basically, he like did a bunch, I did a bunch of detoxes. He taught me how to like cleanse my colon and my bowel. And mm -hmm. I radically changed, I radically changed my diet. And um, like the things I was putting in my body, I did a parasite cleanse and um, it just, it radically changed my, my whole mindset and my physical health. And I attribute that to like a, being a major, major factor mm -hmm. in why I kept going back to drugs and stuff, right? Because you know, what I realize now and know now is if, if you're not healthy in your body, you cannot be healthy in your mind. Mm -hmm. And if you're mm -hmm. unhealthy in your body and your mind, you can't be healthy in your spirit. They're all connected, right? Absolutely. And yeah, since I met this guy and basically he freed me of these addictions, I haven't craved drugs or alcohol. Like I was, I was smoking cigarettes, like mm 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of men can relate to this too. Like I was a chronic masturbator, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so, mm-hmm. like pretty much every guy is, right? And I was even free to that, right? Which is pretty mind-blowing. Like oh. a lot of people start with that. And like it, it, I've been celibate like since basically since that, right? And it's, it, I've just been freed of everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, That's remarkable, William. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. really is. To And you went through kind of this holistic evolution. You know, you mentioned the mind and body. Mm-hmm. In our previous call, you mentioned there's some values that you kind of live by in your sobriety. Can you tell me a little bit about those values or those six elements that you mentioned? Yeah, before? for sure. Kind of like the thing I've taken on and what was taught to me by my mentor is that like, it's it's about like, there's like six areas to life. It's mental, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, as well as financial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And basically like, if you're not like if you're not prospering in your physical, in your mental, and your spiritual, then you can't prosper in the other areas as well, right? Your social will suffer. Obviously, your finances will suffer, mm-hmm. and um, those are all super key important things, right? And we can't truly like be um, have true health in every area unless we're focusing in on all those areas. But it starts with the first three, right? So that's what I tell everyone: is just supposed to start with the first three. And the first one, honestly, is is physical, right? And um, so he got me to focus on the physical first. And once I got my physical up up to par, right, mm-hmm. I started noticing massive changes in the other areas, like in mental health, in my mental health, right? Because yeah, huge, right? There was anxiety, depression, suicidality, all of those things. And at exactly. this point, once you are physically feeling better, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Your mental health probably follows as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. And so how would you describe recovery for you now? Recovery for me now is completely different than what it was for me, like when I was in the second stage. Like I no longer, I'm no longer in AA or NA. Mm-hmm. So basically what I do is I just focus on helping other people. And I'm, to be honest with you, I read the Bible. Like mm-hmm. that's just, the, that's my daily thing is now mm-hmm. I read the Bible every day. And um, that just helps me stay centered, right? Mm-hmm. And um, keeps me in peace. I eat and drink clean, super clean. I do, you know, heavy detoxes. I always, I'm constantly daily doing like detoxes, like cellular detoxes. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just keep my body super healthy. Exercise is crucial. Absolutely crucial. You got to exercise every day, at least half an hour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I never understood how important that was. And um, so that's, that's just been things I've taken on, right? And um, just my purpose is to help people. And having a purpose is super important, which I never had a purpose before. Right. I mean, that that's amazing because as you described your upbringing, you know, you went from one place to the another without shifting, mm-hmm. kind of angry, hurt, resentful, kind of followed you regardless. I mean, your changes early on, it sounds like was purely just geography. Nothing else changed. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And now five years into recovery, it's all about being of service, staying really healthy and mindful. And, you know, doing all these things, what things do you do for fun now? I really like hiking, fishing, mm-hmm. going to movies, but mostly just outdoor stuff, exercising, I work out, I got a gym in my house. And how is your social? Like part of those, those um, elements or values is that psychosocial part. How does that look like for you? For me, social is like, I'm meeting new people all the time, like mostly online and stuff, because like part of my business, like I'm kind of like, I'm not actually full-blown health coach yet, but 
Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that is just, I'm just like kind of helping people with, because there's like so many, so many sick people out there. So I just meet new people all the time online and stuff. And then I have my regular friends and stuff with mm-hmm. I, which I communicate with. But yeah, I just, I talk to a lot of people daily and I like meeting new people and, and helping people with their problems. I think that's beautiful. I mean, you have come full circle, that sounds like. I mean, resilience comes to mind describing you. You know, I mean, yeah. first of all, what you've gone through out the yeah. gate started rough, right? Early yeah. on, childhood was not an easy place to be. And losing a primary person in your life so young is also, you know, devastating, as you mentioned. It was, and, yeah, it was devastating, yeah. And, and so coming full circle, it's beautiful to see that it's possible, you know? Exactly. Especially yeah. when you didn't feel anything was possible. So when people are listening and they're really struggling, what are some of the main things? And you mean, you, you talked about those top three things, but if someone is kind of like really not sure if recovery is something for them because they're so sick and tired, what would you say to someone? It's definitely worth it. And you're worth it. I know people like for me myself, like it was just like, I felt hopeless. Yeah. Um, I'd struggled for so, so long. Right. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I could ever get to where I wanted to be. And for some reason, like I, I knew where I wanted to be and I felt like I just could never get there. So, I mean, it's different for every person, but like, I know everyone in, in addiction or whatever, they're struggling with mental issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, from what I've learned, like I said, it's, it's all related to your physical. So, you know, I still strongly encourage people to like, just focus on, you know, basically cleansing out their body. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of people that care about you, even if you think there isn't. So you're and, not alone. Um, you're not alone. You're never alone. Like people generally care about people. And um, if you feel alone, just like, all you have to do, like for whatever I would do is like, even in dream rights, they were taught me, like, basically if you ever feel a lot of, they say like drug addicts and stuff, they say they're selfish and stuff. Like, I, I don't believe that, mm-hmm. but if you ever, they say, you're, they say, you might say you're selfish because you're thinking of yourself, but it's because you're just so worried about your situation. But if you want to get out of that, just think about helping someone else. And that doesn't necessarily have to be like, you're like helping them move or just something like you feel like you can't necessarily do. Like you can just go talk to someone who's struggling and um, just, or even just smiling at them can make a massive, massive difference. You know what I mean? Cause there's so many people right now that are struggling. Like it's just more than ever. Right. And um, so if you want to get out of yourself, which is the key to getting out of your head is to just try and help someone else. And stay connected. Just, right. Yeah. Stay connected. Exactly. And there's people that care about you and mm-hmm. you know, just, yeah. I mean, you are a true testament of what hopeful can look like because you mm-hmm. have, you know, the depths of, of you know, hell, really, because yeah. you've been there, you know. And so it, it's been so delightful to talk to you and to for you to share your story. And I really appreciate you taking your time, William. One more question. When we first were talking, you mentioned it was Bill and then... You mentioned that it's shifting to William. Can you share a little bit about that shift? It sounds like, you know, like in recovery, people are shifting their identity. They are no longer that person who's been on the streets. They're no longer that person who's been in jail. They're no longer Mm. that person. And so I'm curious about from Bill to William, what was that evolution like and what got you there? Basically, like it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago where I just like, for whatever reason, like my real name is William Kim, right? And I always went by Bill, like through my whole childhood. And, um, you know, I kind of just wanted to like, to move on from all that, right? Because I felt like 
I was no longer that person. And maybe if mm-hmm. I changed my name, I could start afresh. Mm-hmm. So that's basically like all I did that, right? Because even though I'm doing so amazingly well now, we can always improve. Right. Right. And I felt like I was still holding on to some things of who I was and I needed to like let go of that because I'm no longer that person, right? Well, I think that's beautiful. I mean, when, and one of the things you mentioned too briefly is, you know, Mm -hmm. when things get better, it doesn't mean it's easier. Like you were in your sobriety, you were doing really well, and then mental health stuff came in and you felt really triggered and you wanted to die with anxiety, all this other stuff, but you weren't using, right? And I think that's an important thing to address is when people begin to go into sobriety, Many think it's going to be super great and everything's going to feel good when actually that's actually not always true. It still gets hard. Honestly, maybe that's like, that's why, like why I do what I do now is because I think we're missing a lot of key pictures of the puzzle. Like I described before. Right. And in treatment and stuff, like all the treatment, like I went to a few different facilities and I'm sure there's ones that do have like the bases covered as far as the physical health goes. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I honestly truly believe that if we kind of connected the pieces of the puzzle better for people and dealt with more of the physical and not just the mental, which is they seem to try and do the mental emotional stuff, I think there'd be a lot better success, right? Because mm-hmm. like we had mentioned, and I mentioned, I struggled my whole life, right? Right. To get to where I am at today. And I the whole piece of the puzzle I was looking for was my physical health. Those are really important components. Yeah. And once I, once I worked on my physical health, the mental health just came with it. That makes a lot of sense. You know, you can't really ignore either one of them, the yeah. mental health, right? And so, for sure. absolutely. Well, I appreciate this holistic kind of approach and how you see what recovery really is and what yeah. a lifestyle can be like beyond the recovery piece. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're healing well and moving on to things that really matter for you and you found your purpose and meaning, which is amazing. So I wish you the very best and I thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dr. Amelia. It's been a pleasure being on your show and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.